0: Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side in the wee hours of March 25th, 2023. So, uh, did you happen to notice that there is a little spat going on between the United States and Mexico at the moment over trade and agricultural policy, which happens to have some serious implications for, oh, you know, the survival of the human race. The U.S. Trade Representative on March 20th initiated a technical consultation, quote unquote, with Mexico, the last step before the United States files a full dispute settlement complaint before a panel of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which is the rebooted version of NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement. This concerns Mexico's impending ban on imports of biotech corn. Mexico is a top market for U.S. corn exports. Corn is the number one U.S. agricultural export. And some 90% of U.S. corn today is biotech corn. That is the patented intellectual property of private corporations as genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. Mexico, having already banned the cultivation of GMO corn within its territory, has now gone a step further and banned the importation of GMO corn for human consumption altogether. We're now on the nine-month countdown to this ban taking effect. The biotech and agribusiness interests are warning darkly that Mexico may face corn shortages and a food crisis when it does, when the law goes into effect. Now, this law is really the fruit of a long campaign by Mexico's campesinos, or peasants, and small farmers, going back some 10 years. In 2013, local beekeepers brought suit against the uh, Agriculture Secretariat after it approved the use of so-called Roundup-ready GMO soy crops produced by the Monsanto Company, which has since been taken over by Bayer, these um, Roundup Ready seeds facilitate the use of Roundup, that is, the chemical pesticide glyphosate, which the beekeepers said threatened their bees. And they repeatedly prevailed in the courts and got the Agriculture Secretariat to revoke the licenses, and finally they succeeded in getting the Mexican courts to impose a permanent injunction on any further such licenses. And now this cause has been taken up by Mexico's left populist president, André Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, as he's affectionately called. On uh, December 31st, 2020, AMLO... Issued a decree setting a deadline of January 1st, 2024, to end the importation of GMO corn for human consumption into Mexico altogether. And the uh, decree also calls for an end to imports of glyphosate by this date. The decree states that the objective of the decision is to, quote, contribute to food security and sovereignty and protect native corn, cornfields, biocultural wealth, farming communities, gastronomic heritage, and the health of Mexicans, end quote. Mexico currently imports about 20 million metric tons of corn per year from the United States, the big majority of it GMO. So, we may imagine that the U.S. corn lobby is very unhappy about this, The National Corn Growers Association says the impending ban would be catastrophic for U.S. corn producers and Mexican consumers alike, and will undermine principles of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. And I'm sure, as we're all aware, the boosters of GMO corn and GMO crops generally argue that These seeds are bioengineered to be resistant to both pests and pesticides, and uh, are therefore a boon to productivity and are fighting world hunger. This is very, very wrong. And here it is very important to make clear what the critique of GMO crops actually is that is the legitimate critique, (laughs) because there is much confusion on this question. The industry inevitably responds that it hasn't been proven that GMO foods are toxic or cause ill health effect, which only demonstrates that they don't understand the critique or are intentionally trying to distract from it and derail the discussion. They're getting the answer they want, by asking the wrong question. Now, some anti-GMO activists themselves kind of miss the real critique and thereby unwittingly play into this propaganda. It should be said that sites like Natural News that trade in alarmism about the unproven health hazards of GMO foods assist the industry propagandist in changing the subject presumably unwittingly the actual critique is of the ecological social and political impacts of Gmo seeds which are explicitly designed as part of a so-called technological package to protect so-called intellectual property and get farmers hooked On pesticides and petrochemical fertilizers. Agribusiness, which can afford the whole input package that GMOs are designed for, pesticides, petrochemical fertilizers, etc., come to dominate the market, eased by so called free trade policies. They force the peasantry off the market and ultimately off the land a process very well advanced in Mexico since NAFTA took effect in 1994, and which is intimately related to the explosion of the narco economy and mass migration in the years since then. Local peasant economies collapse, the displaced are sucked into the narco trade, or head north in desperation, and the sustainable and often de facto or unofficially organic agriculture of the peasantry, merely because they often can't afford pesticides and petrochemical fertilizers, is abandoned. The ecological impacts are obvious. Monsanto's Roundup-ready seeds mean that Agbiz can spray glyphosate as much as they want, with clear impacts on local biodiversity. Reliance on chemical fertilizers depletes the soil of organic matter in the long run. And then there's the whole question of corporate control, forcing farmers into dependence on GMO seeds, which reaches its most perverse form in the so-called Genetic Use Restriction Technology, or GERT, also known as Terminator Technology, Seeds designed so that the second generation of seeds from the planted crop are infertile, effectively putting an end to the ancient agricultural tradition of seed saving or seed swapping and wiping out local agricultural self-sufficiency. And of course, Terminator seeds escaping into the wild and infecting the fields of neighboring farms or the local ecosystem generally. Has obvious grave implications. Now, this trend began with the development of hybrid seeds in the so-called Green Revolution after World War II, but has taken a qualitative leap forward with the development of GMO seeds over the past generation. But here's the thing native seed stock is needed to create new hybrids, and to provide the genetic raw material for new GMOs. As nature catches up to the old ones, so to speak, and finds ways around their immunities, as was dramatically demonstrated in the famous Southern Corn Leaf Blight of 1970, which virtually wiped out the U.S. corn crop that year, causing shortages and sending prices soaring. And these native seeds are disappearing as the hybrid and GMO seeds become hegemonic. So there has been an imperative by government and corporate power to collect and warehouse samples of native seeds, or land races, as they are called. This story is told quite exhaustively in a book I just read, Endangered Maize, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction by Helen Ann Curry, University of California Press 2022, which traces the whole history of this effort, particularly as concerns corn or maize. Beginning with a project of the U.S. Department of Agriculture over a century ago, when patented corn varieties were just hitting the market, and USDA teams started collecting land race samples, both in peasant communities in Mexico and among Native American communities in the United States. This continued with the efforts of the University of Chicago geographer Carl Sauer and the pioneering Soviet botanist Nikolai Vavilov who collected samples not just of corn, but many crops, and not just in Mexico, but around the world, and postulated the theory of his so-called Vavilov Centers, global zones of high biodiversity from which most cultivated plants originated. And of course, Mexico and Central America constitute one of the Vavilov Centers from which maize, as well as beans squash, and chili peppers all emerged. Uh, Just as an addendum, Vavilov would of course fall victim to the Stalin purges and died in a prison camp, and his vast seed collection at the Vavilov Institute in St. Petersburg was eaten by the starving populace of the city during the siege in World War II really tragic. But uh, back to the story. The next critical figure here is Henry A. Wallace, who was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's agriculture secretary and later vice president, who was very much a lefty. He was kind of the Bernie Sanders of the 1940s, definitely on the far left of the New Deal coalition But um, he first came to fame as a founder of the Iowa-based Pioneer Hybrid Corn Company, which was indeed a pioneer of the so-called Green Revolution, which really took off after World War II with these utopian visions of eliminating world hunger through science and efficient hybrid seed varieties. And this vision was taken up officially and internationally with support from the World Bank and the Rockefeller Foundation with the establishment of the <clears throat> Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research, CGR, <coughs> which oversees research centers around the world, most prominently the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, or SIMIT. Centro Internacional de Mejoramiento de Maíz y Trigo in Nostrado de Mexico, outside Mexico City. There is also an International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, an International Institute for Tropical Agriculture in Nigeria, and an International Center for Tropical Agriculture in Colombia which all maintain and experiment with large collections of seed samples. One of the foremost seed collections in the world today is the U.S. National Seed Storage Laboratory run by the USDA in Fort Collins, Colorado. And even more ambitious is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault maintained by the Global Crop Diversity Trust on a Norwegian island up near the North Pole, the so-called Doomsday Vault, with many thousands of seed samples from around the world, so that agriculture can start over if it is wiped out by nuclear war or some other global cataclysm. But in her final chapter, author Helen Ann Curry goes on to note the emergence of more grassroots and democratic efforts at seed preservation on a farmer-centered model. Among the first was the Native Seed Search, established in Tucson, Arizona in the 1980s, and since then, various efforts in Mexico, inspired by the Zapatista rebel movement that took up arms in the southern state of Chiapas in 1994, in response to the instatement of NAFTA, calling the treaty a threat to the survival of Mexico's campesinos and indigenous peoples. And as a part of the same cultural and political surgence, there have been efforts across Mexico to preserve native corn strains under the slogan, sin maiz, no hay país," or without corn, there is no country. I will interject here that on my recent trip to Mexico, about which I'll have a little more to say later, I became aware of uh, one such effort called Proyecto Mayes or Project Corn, a so-called corn conservancy near Tacate in Baja California, which collects and keeps alive Mayes land races from throughout Mexico. Now, Helen Ann Curry is mostly looking at the threat from abandonment of native seeds as hybrids and GMOs become hegemonic. But really, that is just one of three interrelated factors, I would argue. There's abandonment of native seed, yes, but also abandonment of maize altogether as it becomes less profitable to grow thanks to massive U.S. imports and peasants and small producers switch to asparagus or agave cactus to produce tequila or whatnot. And finally, there is the dispossession of the peasantry from their land base. And this factor was very evident to me in the month that I just spent in Mexico. I just returned to New York two weeks ago now. Uh, I'll just briefly state that I went down there for medical tourism, not for journalism, although I have done much journalism from Mexico over the years, especially covering the Zapatistas and related movements in the 1990s. This was my first time in Mexico in 20 years, and I was in La Paz, the capital of the state of Baja California Sur, A place where I actually spent some time just uh, kind of hanging out as a hippie vagabond back in the early 80s and kind of fell in love with. A nice sleepy and picturesque fishing town, as it was back then. There isn't a lot of maize cultivation going on around there because it's in the desert. But the most disappointing thing about how La Paz has changed... Is When I was there in the 80s, you could walk from one end of town to the other, and then you'd be out in the desert immediately. Now there's this huge ring of suburban sprawl surrounding the town for miles, and it turns out that the surrounding desert is, or was, mostly ejidos, that is lands collectively titled to Campesino communities, which were designed to be inalienable as a gain of the Mexican Revolution, and particularly the insurgency of the original Zapatistas, the followers of Emiliano Zapata. But constitutional changes were pushed through in the early 90s in preparation for NAFTA, allowing the ejidos to be privatized which was really the key factor that led to the emergence of the neo-Zapatistas, who took up arms in Chiapas on January 1st, 1994, the precise moment that NAFTA took effect. And what's happened since then, despite the resistance of the neo-Zapatistas, which has slowed the process, especially within Chiapas, is that the ejidos have indeed been sold off usually to agribusiness interests, but also, as in La Paz, to real estate interests, who are carving the lands up into fraccionamientos, or subdivisions. Now, because it is desert, there wasn't a lot of maize cultivation happening on these lands, as stated, those outside La Paz. So, it was mostly used for sheep herding, from what I can gather, and these ejidos, were so expansive because on such dry, scrubby land, you need a lot of territory to maintain a single head of sheep. In more fertile areas of Mexico, an can just be a little plot of land on the edge of the village. But here, they were long stretches of desert and scrubland. But the way it's been eaten away by subdivisions and shopping malls over the past generation and change, since I last been there, is testament. To the dilemma we are discussing tonight. Okay, let's pull out for a um, little more of an international view. I really first became aware of this dilemma back in the nineteen eighties when I did a story about Nicaragua's efforts to recover its Mayas' land races. This was when, if you recall, Revolutionary Nicaragua was under harsh U.S. sanctions so it couldn't get corn seed from the U.S., and there was really an imperative to recover its native corn strains and try to achieve self-sufficiency. And it turned out that many of the surviving samples of Nicaraguan land races were at the USDA facility in Fort Collins, and Nicaragua couldn't get them back due to the sanctions which deepened the food crisis in the country, which in turn contributed to the revolutionary Sandinista government, losing power in the 1990 elections. How messed up is that? There is an account of this episode in my first book, War on the Land, Ecology and Politics in Central America, Zed Books, 1991. And today, there are two other countries around the world that have uh, taken measures similar to that Mexico is now preparing to instate. One is Kenya, which banned the importation of all GMO seeds in 2012, but has now dropped that policy in light of the regional drought and global food crisis over the protest of advocates for small farmers. And the other, somewhat ironically, is Russia. Which instated a quote ban on growing and production of genetically modified organisms on Russian territory, end quote, in uh, 2016. Obviously, with an eye toward decoupling from the world economy and particularly from US agribusiness, not necessarily for the best of reasons, shall we say. And the current global food crisis, with prices for basic foodstuffs soaring all over the world is in large part a creation of the Russian war in Ukraine, with Ukrainian wheat exports cut off and Russia accused of weaponizing wheat, profiting from a crisis of its own creation, exploiting the inflated prices for its own wheat exports to fund its war effort. And since the invasion began last year, there have been angry protests over food and energy prices in countries around the world including Iran even before the current wave of protest there began in September Lebanon, Sri Lanka, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Mauritius, Argentina, Peru, Ecuador, etc. And this all illustrates how close to the edge we really are. Global agriculture is increasingly dependent on GMOs which are in turn dependent on the attendant technological package, which in turn is dependent in large part on oil for petrochemical fertilizers, for instance, a major Russian export, by the way. So when the supply chain that facilitates this technological package starts to break down, you're faced with the threat of agricultural collapse a very underappreciated element of the really dangerous moment humanity finds itself facing now. Don't be fooled by the shelves full of bad corporate food at your local convenience store. Mass starvation looms in humanity's future if we keep going down this path. I wasn't joking when I said the survival of the human race is at issue here and whatever strong criticisms I may have of André Manuel López Obrador, including his growing flirtation with Vladimir Putin, I am definitely rooting for Mexico in its showdown with the U.S. over the GMO corn ban. This is definitely one to watch, and we will be watching it here on The Counter Vortex. This has been The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. If you appreciate our work, join the Counter Vortex, join the Resistance, and rant on you next time.